This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. I'd like to welcome you to Rand's monthly congressional briefing series. Today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online tomorrow at about this same time at www.rand.org. Or you can listen to, today, to today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's congressional briefing series on iTunes. Our briefing today will be jointly presented by James Hosek and Beth Ash, who are the co-investigators of the study, which was just released today. So I hope everyone got a copy of this because it just came out this morning. You should have a, a copy of a fact sheet as well in your folder, a two-page fact sheet. This work focuses on a particularly timely and important topic, which is the effect of bonuses on wartime military recruitment, retention efforts, and attrition. James Hosek's research focuses on national security manpower in the areas of recruiting, retention, compensation deployment, personnel quality, and the science and engineering workforce. Beth Ash's research focuses on recruitment, retention, compensation, retirement, and performance incentives of personnel in the U.S. military and federal civil service. I'll turn the program over to Dr. Ash. Okay, well, thank you, Shirley. Um, so what this presentation does is show the results of our study that just is being released today on the effects of bonuses on enlistment, attrition, and re-enlistment. It's a study that was sponsored by the Office of Accession Policy within OSD. So just by way of background to set the stage for you today, um, as many of you know, um, up until recently, recruiting and retention was challenging. And we can show that in different ways, but here we show it in one specific way as an example. What this chart shows is the percent of, uh, of recruits by service who are high quality, where in the military, high quality is defined as somebody with a high school diploma and with an aptitude score, AFQT score, above 50. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar, but maybe some of you aren't. The way the AFQT works is that it's normed against the youth population. So if you are above 50, that means that you are above average relative to the rest of the youth population. Well, what this chart shows is that Beginning around uh, 2004, you can see this precipitous drop for the Army. So about 60% of recruits for the Army were high quality, but by 2008, you can see that it dropped um, by to about 45%. Now you can see it started to upturn a little bit, and that reflects the, uh, the recent economic downturn. So in response to this uh, decline in, in, in recruiting and retention and the challenges that were being faced, Congress increased recruiting and reenlistment incentives. And, and among those resources what were bonuses. And what this chart shows is the increase in the enlistment bonus budget. So you can see that in about 2004, it was about 100 and, uh, this is in 2008 dollars, by the way, it was about $170 million for enlistment bonuses. Uh, by 2007, you can see it had gone above f a half a billion dollars. So there was this huge ramp up in enlistment bonus budgets for the Army. In the case of reenlistment, this shows the reenlistment bonus budgets by service. You can see that there was a big ramp up from about $120 million in 2008. This is $2008 dollars, 120 
all the way up to above 700 and then it evened up to about 735 by 2008. So you see these big increases for the Army. In the case of reenlistment, you also see a big ramp up for the Marine Corps as well, although of course the overall scale is somewhat larger. And so in response to this big increase, Congress had asked OSD, so what did you get for this money? And specifically, they asked DOD to report on, first of all, what were the size and scope of bonuses? Uh, second, what are the metrics of performance? And then finally, what is an assessment based on those metrics? And so what we did is we got data from the Defense Manpower Data Center, <coughs> excuse me, on the size and scope of bonuses, and it, uh, the information you'll see will be in the appendix of our report. <clears throat> and then in terms of metrics, we drew on recent co uh, congressional various study groups. So for example, the 7th Quadrennial Review of Military Compensation, the 9th, the 10th, the Defense Advisory Committee on Military Compensation, all these organizations, study groups, and so forth, set forth the objectives of compensation. And so we drew on those to come up with metrics. So one of the metrics of compensation effectiveness is, does it help force management? Specifically, do, in the case of bonuses, do bonuses help recruiting and retention? And maybe a different way to state that is, what would happen to recruiting and retention in the absence of that increase in bonuses? Another metric that's very specific to special incentive pays, such as bonuses, is are they flexibly used? Do they adjust quickly when problems arise with recruiting and retention? Are they targeted to the specific skills and services where those problems are emerging? And then a third criteria that we use to uh, assess uh, the, the performance of bonuses is in terms of efficiency or the bang for the buck. A different way to say that is cost effectiveness. And what we do is we show the effective cost effectiveness of bonuses relative to alternative ways to, to address recruiting and retention, specifically pay. And the way we, we, we assess this, that was our third charter, if you will, to assess uh, relative to these metrics, is we developed models, estimated them, we, we got data on enlistments and re-enlistments and the factors that affect them, and that allowed us to estimate what's the effect of bonuses on enlistments and re-enlistments holding other factors constant. Well, what are those, some of those other factors? Well, in the case of recruiting, it's other recruiting resources like recruiters, the state of the civilian economy, like the unemployment rate. In the case of re-enlistments, it's issues such as uh, deployments. So we are able to estimate what's the effect of bonuses on enlistments and re-enlistments, and then given those estimates, we can then do what-if simulations, exercises. What would have happened to recruiting and retention in the absence of bonuses? And then adding some cost information, we can then compute cost effectiveness. And just to give you, so the rest of our briefing is actually going to cover the results of, of this analysis, but to give you a preview of coming attractions, the bottom line is we find an overall very positive effect. We find that bonuses do contribute to force management. They increase enlistment and re-enlistment in the absence of the increases we observed. Our, uh, recruiting and retention would have uh, suffered significantly. We find that bonuses were used flexibly to the extent that they were varying over time and across occupations, across services, as conditions changed. And then thirdly, we find that relative to pay, bonuses are a cost-effective resource for addressing recruiting and retention problems. 
And so the way we're going to organize today is I'm going to show you results related to enlistment as well as attrition, and then I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Jim Hosek, who will then speak about our results with respect to re-enlistment. So what this shows is our estimates from our models of the effects of three different resources, which are the top three, as well as the unemployment rate, to give you a feel of, of some of what we find. So the way to read this is, let's take the case of recruiters. The Army, on average, has a recruiting force of about 5,500 recruiters at a given point in time. On it varies, but that's on average. What we find in our model is that increasing recruiters by 10% would increase high-quality enlistments in the Army by 5.7%. So to give you a sense of what that means, in a quarter, the Army enlists, on average, roughly about 10,000 high-quality recruits. So a 5.7% increase would be 570 new high-quality recruits. Okay? Bonuses, we estimate an effect of 1.7. It looks like it's smaller, but you also have to realize, remember when I showed you those bonus budgets? Bonus budget, bonuses go up and down in, in a big way. They don't just increase a little, they increase a lot or they decrease a lot. And so the, the effect looks small, but the overall effect will turn out to be big. And I'm going to show you a simulation in the next chart that, that illustrates that point. Military pay has the largest effect, but what we're going to show you is that military pay tends also to be the most expensive way to go. The unemployment rate, as most of our intuition tells you, when you increase, when the economy gets bad, the unemployment rate gets, increases, we find that high-quality enlistments increase. And indeed, we find that to be the case. So given our estimates, we can do a what-if exercise, and it's shown in this chart. What it shows, what this shows is the number of high-quality enlistments in the Army by quarter. That's the green line. What the yellow line is, is our what-if exercise. And what the, the exercise is, suppose that we left bonuses at their, the, the level they were at the end of 2003, excuse me, 2004, which was on average about $3,000. So suppose we didn't have an increase in the average bonus of from $3,000 to about $12,000, which is what average bonuses increased between 2004 and 2008. And we just left it at that $3,000 level. What we find is that enlistments, high-quality enlistments, would have been 20% lower on average. So that's what that gap is. What that translates to is about 1,700 fewer high-quality enlistments per quarter in the Army, or over that entire period, about 26, a little over 26,000 high-quality enlistments. So it's a very large effect. And what this illustrates is that in the absence of bonus, the big bonus increase, high-quality enlistments would have been substantially lower in the Army. I mentioned that one of our other metrics of performance was flexibility. And as I mentioned, the, the appendix, we show how bonuses vary over time and across occupations. And this chart just gives you a flavor of how bonuses varied over time for the Army versus the Navy, just to kind of give you that sense of flexibility of how they were turned on and off um, over this period. In the case of the Army, you can see Actually, there was a planned decrease in end strength, and so this shows the percent of enlistees getting a bonus. There was a planned decrease in, in uh, end strength, so you saw a decline in bonuses, and then you started to see this big ramp up, going from about one in three recruits getting a bonus to about three in four getting a bonus, a very large increase. 
In contrast, in the Navy, you see that things were actually relatively stable. It was about 50% in 2003, and it declined a bit down to about 42% by 2008. I mentioned that our third, con our third metric was on cost effectiveness. What this shows is those results from before. So this is from the previous chart. What this shows is the additional cost associated with adding an, another high-quality recruit by each of these methods, recruiters, bonuses, or pay. So increasing high quality, adding another high-quality recruit would cost 33200 if it was done by adding recruiters, 44900 by bonuses, and 57 by military pay. These are actually quite conservative estimates. We use a very conservative notion of effectiveness. So for example, in the case of bonuses, what we do is focus just on what's the effect of bonuses in increasing the number of high-quality recruits. We don't look at such things as what's their effect on channeling them into hard-to-fill occupations, like the, in other words, occupation-specific effects. But we the bottom line here is that bonuses are more cost-effective than pay. And the reason for that is because bonuses are a targeted resource that gets turned on and off. They're targeted to occupations and to high-quality recruits. Pay everyone gets it. High quality, low quality, this occupation, that occupation, and, so, and furthermore, they don't turn off, right? So as a result, pay ends up being a more cost-effective way of achieving an increase, the same increase in high-quality enlistments. The next topic I want to talk to you a little bit about is attrition. Some people worry that when we increase high-quality enlistments, we bring in people who have less attachment to the military. They're in it for the money. And so when things might go unexpectedly bad, for example, rather than stick it out, they leave. And so people worry that when we increase enlistment bonuses a lot, we actually are in a sense, kicking ourselves in the foot because we're actually causing attrition rate to decline because we're bringing in those people with less attachment to the military. On the other hand, the way the, bon the bonuses are paid out gives an incentive to stay. In other words, the Army gives, when bonuses are large, half is paid up front, and then the rest of the payments are staggered over time over the first term. And so as a result, if you leave early, you miss out on those anniversary payments. And so they have a big incentive to stay. So the question is, is what's the net effect? Is it negative because we're bringing in these sort of marginal recruits with less attachment to the military? Or is it, uh, you know, in other words, do we increase uh, attrition? Or do we actually cause attrition to, to decline because we're giving people an incentive to stay? And so we studied that. Just by a baseline, the average Army attrition rate is about 32%. In other words, about one in three Army recruits do not complete their first term of enlistment. We then did an analysis of what's the effect of different, of, of different factors on the attrition rate. And this gives you a selection of some of the results. So the way to read this, for example, let's take waivers. If you got, came in with a waiver, you're a recruit who came in with a waiver, holding other factors constant, that would increase the attrition rate by 6.9%. Now to give you a sense of what the scale is, that translates into about a two percentage point increase in the attrition rate. So in other words, if you came in with an enlistment rate, uh, enlistment waiver, we'd predict that your probability of attrition would be 34% higher, you're more likely to leave, than what we see on average. In the case of bonus receipt, 
we find the net effect is negative. In other words, if you got that bonus, you're less likely to leave. So a different way to say that is that incentive effect outweighs the, the, the effect of bringing in, if you will, marginal recruits who have less taste for the military. And to give you a sense of the scale of that, a 5.3% decline, that's about a 1.5 percentage point. So in other words, instead of a 32% probability of leaving, the probability of leaving is now about 30%. So in other words, when we offer enlistment bonuses, we not only expand the market, we bring in more high-quality recruits, we actually get a slightly increase in man years because these people are less likely to leave. And so now what I want to do is hand it over to Jim Hosek, who will then speak about our uh, re-enlistment results. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'll pick up where Beth left off. We'll talk about re-enlistment. Uh, our empirical analysis of the effect of bonuses on re-enlistment allowed us to find out the extent to which an increase in bonus generosity would increase re-enlistment. And we did this for each of the four services and looking at first-term re-enlistment and second-term re-enlistment. Now the way bonuses were paid during the course of our study, which covered years 2002 to 2007, was as the product of years of service, basic pay, and something called a bonus multiplier. Now I mention this technical detail because the amount of the bonus an individual receives is in part a result of the individual's length of re-enlistment term. And that's a, that's a personal choice. However, the bonus multiplier is something that the bonus setter determines. And so that's determined by the military. Now there are more technical details about trying to estimate the effects of bonuses that we discuss in the report. But what's important here is that our focus in terms of measuring bonus generosity is on this thing called the bonus multiplier. And so what we're looking at here is a chart showing the effect on first-term re-enlistment of a one-step increase in the bonus multiplier. Now to put that in context, today a, a, a person with, who is a corporal, an E4, with say four years of uh, service behind him or her has a monthly pay depending, uh, uh, I think it's around $2,100, okay? So a four-year re-enlistment at $2,100 would give a bonus of about $8,400 at a step one bonus. At step two, it's twice that, $16,000, okay, $16,800. So that gives you some context. And so what we see here for the Army is that a, a bonus multiple multiplier increase of one step would result in a two and a half percentage point increase in the Army re-enlistment rate at first term and in the Navy re-enlistment rate at first term. For the Marine Corps, it's just under 4%, and for the Air Force, it's about uh, point one, one and a half percentage points. Okay? Now, again, to give you further context on that, for the Army, over this period, the average re-enlistment rate was just under 40%. So here we're talking about a one-step bonus increase, moving the re-enlistment rate from about 0 0.40 to about 0 0.425. <laughs> that may seem uh, large or small, and we need to put it in further context. It's not clear. Uh, what it is. For the second term, the effects for the Army and the Air Force were the same. For the Navy, it was about half that. 
and for the Marine Corps we found a very small effect. Now, bonuses don't just change the percent of people re-enlisting. They also, as I mentioned at the beginning, might encourage people to select longer terms because if you select a longer term of obligation, you get a higher bonus. And so we did further analysis to find out the extent to which higher bonuses would increase the length of re-enlistment that individuals selected. And this chart displays our results for the first term re-enlistment point. On the horizontal axis, what we see are the bonus steps or multipliers that I talked about. And on the vertical axis, we see the change in re-enlistment in terms of months that people add on. As you see, for the most part, the general pattern is as the bonus generosity, that is the bonus step, increases, individuals are willing to sign on for more months of service, that is, they select longer terms of service. I want to draw your attention to the anom anomalous result we have for the Air Force. Uh, typically, we would expect more generous bonuses always to lead to a, a selection of more months of service. But we noticed that for the Air Force, for bonus multipliers, selective reenlistment bonus multipliers, at low levels, there's actually a small negative effect on length of reenlistment. This is an anomaly. We don't necessarily understand it. I wouldn't claim that. But if you'll indulge me in a speculation, it has to do with the possibility that some airmen uh, are looking forward to the possibility that bonuses will be higher in the future. And so when they're low, they select a low term of re-enlistment in the off chance of being able to take advantage of a higher bonus in the future. That's speculation. Um, let's take a look at the second term effects. Now here, at the beginning, as the, as the generosity of the bonus increases, again we see a positive effect, effect on length of re-enlistment. But that effect tapers off and then becomes negative at higher bonus uh, step amounts, at higher bonus steps. The reason for this, we believe, has to do with the fact that there is a bonus ceiling. In other words, there's a maximum amount an individual can receive. And for individuals at the second term who tend to be at somewhat higher, somewhat higher pay levels, they're more likely to be at the bonus ceiling when a high bonus multiplier is paid. And as a result of that, if they were to sign on for a longer term of service, they would get no higher bonus. And in fact, for those who are near or at the bonus ceiling, when the bonus multiplier is increased, they can actually get the same bonus amount by signing up for a shorter term of service. And so that's the reason we think this curve tips over. This curve, by these curves and the ones I just showed you, by the way, represent estimates from our regression analysis. And so they're not based on tabulations, but they're actually a, a plotting of point estimates from uh, our uh, empirical analysis. Now, what we want to do here is put together the fact that bonuses can increase the probability of reenlistment and the length of reenlistment term that somebody chooses. And the way we do this is by going through a policy exercise, somewhat like Beth mentioned, for the um, recruiting side. In this case, we're going to ask the Lua thought experiment. We're going to ask what would have happened to the number of person years in the Army generated at first term and second term reenlistment if the bonuses being paid in 2007 were turned off and no bonuses were paid. 
And what we find is that at first term, the army would have lost 3,700 and some person years of military service. And at the second term, just over 7,000 person years. At the first term, the army first term reenlistments typically generates at its base around 70,000 years of additional service. And so this 3780 term we have here represents about a 5% or 6% loss. And a second term reenlistment generates about 55,000 additional years of service. And so that 7,000 would represent something like a 12% loss in person years. So these get to be fairly sizable effects, especially when the services are concerned with maintaining the ongoing military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and doing, doing their manning on a rotational basis. Now, one of the aspects of bonus usages that we were concerned with was whether or not they have been a flexible instrument in helping the services meet their manning requirements. And here, uh, I'll, show, I'll show results uh, for bonus usage for all of the services, but let me begin with the Army. This curve plots the percentage of soldiers who are re-enlisting and who receive a bonus. And I want to draw your attention to the years since 2002. Um, in 2002, 2003, as you can see, around 50%, maybe a little bit fewer, were receiving a bonus. And that dipped in 2004 and 2005, in part because there was an upsurge in reenlistment behavior after the, victim, the victory over Saddam's uh, military. And so there was a cutback. But then, just prior to 2005, the Army was told that it should grow. And it set forth uh, paying more bonuses. And then in 2006 and 2007, uh, in related research we've done at RAND and documented in a different report, we found that there had become a negative effect on reenlistment among soldiers who, who had been deployed and had had 12 or more total months of deployment in the three years prior to their reenlistment. And that negative effect on soldiers, uh, that was, of course, exerting downward pressure on reenlistment. This wasn't just a few soldiers. In fact, two-thirds of the soldiers up at first-term reenlistment had had 12 or more months of deployment in the previous three years. So it turns out the Army's rapid and large expansion of bonuses beginning in 2005 with the impetus to grow the size of the Army and then followed in 2006 and 7 with continued effort to grow the Army but also to stave off possible negative effects of deployment led the, led the percent receiving a bonus to climb from 16% up to around 80%, a very large increase. The figures for the second term are similar, not quite as high. I've added the experience for the other services on this chart. Uh, please note for the Air Force, a very large decline in its use of bonuses. And like the Navy, the Air Force too was actually shrinking somewhat in size from 2005 onward. So their need for paying more bonuses had decreased. At the same time, the Marine Corps, like the Army, was both told to grow and had a number of Marines with relatively extensive deployment. And their expanded use of bonuses also helped them maintain their overall reenlistment rates. 
Now during this period, both the Army and the Marine Corps, like the Navy and the Air Force, succeeded in maintaining fairly stable overall reenlistment rates. So if you were to look only at the overall reenlistment rates, you would miss entirely these tensions, this tug of war in a sense, between the effects of deployment um, and the need to grow on the one hand, uh, and the use of bonuses to help counteract the possible negative effects of deployment and to, of course, uh, support the, uh, the idea of growth. But generally, you can see, just in the movement of the percentage of personnel receiving bonuses, considerable flexibility in the service's use of bonuses over time. We can put together the information we have on the effect on reenlistment uh, re and the effect on length of term of reenlistment chosen with information on bonus cost and do that in a way that allows us to compute the cost per additional year of reenlistment from paying uh, uh, bonuses. And what we find, uh, shown on this chart obviously for first and second term, is starting with first term, um, costs per additional person year that range from about $17,000 for the Marine Corps up to around twenty-four to 25000 for the Army and the Navy, and then a higher number, $70,000 for the Air Force. You may be wondering, why in the world is the Air Force cost so high? And it traces back to exactly what we were looking at before. There are two reasons. The first is that the Air Force had a relatively low effect of bonuses on first-term reenlistment. And the second is they had a low effect of bonuses on the length of reenlistment chosen. And those two factors together meant that for the Air Force, the cost per additional year was fairly high compared to the other services. Uh, for the second term, we can see that the cost per additional person year for the Army was the same as at first term, um, higher in the Navy, um, much higher in the Marine Corps, and still higher in the Air Force. That very high number relative to first term for the Marine Corps, the $77,000, comes from the fact that the effective bonuses on Marine Corps reenlistment at second term was, by our estimates, quite low. Now, our estimates are estimates. We have uh, no apologies. We were very thorough in what we were doing. But this is not a controlled laboratory experiment, and we were dealing with real data. And sometimes you just get estimates that are lower or higher than you might get at other times. But nonetheless, we're reporting the results that we got and that have been checked. And as you can see, the cost per additional person year uh, for the Marine Corps and the Air Force were relatively high compared to the other services. Now, that said, what if instead of bonuses, basic pay had been used? And along with it, the other elements that go with military compensation. The annual average military compensation today stands at around $130,000. So just paying a person to stay for one more year would have been in the range of $130,000. In other words, compared to bonuses, the cost of achieving the increase in person years would have been higher than for bonuses. Uh, basically $130,000 versus the numbers I showed on the previous chart, this chart here too. So uh, let me now just turn to the conclusions. Uh, as Beth mentioned, we tried to evaluate the effect of enlistment and reenlistment bonuses from the perspective of the objectives set forth in a number of previous studies. 
These objectives concerned whether or not bonuses were effective in helping the services manage their forces, were flexible, and were cost effective. And the answers we have is that, uh, are simply that, yes, uh, the bonus, bonus usage certainly did contribute to force management. Further, there were indications that the use of bonuses was flexible, so that bonus setters were applying bonuses where they were needed, uh, obviously for the purpose of helping to meet manning requirements. And third, that they were cost effective given other factors that exist, for example, we have to consider the cost effectiveness of bonuses relative to overall military compensation. And fortunately, military compensation through a series of basic pay increases and the expansion of the housing allowance in the early part of this decade helped provide an excellent floor, an excellent basis for sustaining recruiting and retention. So the effectiveness of bonuses builds on that rather substantial foundation that exists in the form of the what's called regular military compensation. And given that floor, what we find is that the bonuses are cost effective. Now, our research also points to a small area where the use of bonuses, at least at reenlistment, could be improved. And this has to do with the earlier results you saw on what we believe to be the negative effect of the bonus ceiling on the length of reenlistment. So our recommendation is that bonus ceilings be either relaxed, made more, made higher, or that at least uh, the services be given some flexibility in, in, in setting bonus amounts uh, that allows them to exceed the ceilings in at least some cases. We have a couple of brief recommendations. These generally fall under the heading of the fact that in order to obtain better estimates of bonus effects, it would be advantageous to do enlistment and re-enlistment bonus experiments. This would help provide estimates that are unlikely to be affected by possible biases in the estimation that come from the way bonuses are set. And these points both speak to that, and so with that, uh, let me conclude. And uh, since this is the end of our formal presentation, I also simply want to mention that this concludes the recorded portion of today's presentation and will now open to the audience for questions. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.